Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27. We'll be starting from verse 1. Chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is the word of God. You haven't met me yet. I'm going to ask you a morbid question. I don't normally tend to do this, but let me ask it. If you were to die tonight and you found yourself standing before God, And he asked you, why do you deserve to be in heaven? What would you say? What are you relying on to get in? Some of us may be thinking through the good that we have done in our lives. We've raised our families well. We've been fair in our business dealings. We've worked hard in our workplaces. We've done the best that we can. Now, these are all good things. But can I ask, is it enough? As you stand before God and he asks you why you deserve to be in heaven, have you done enough? And for some of us here, we know the right answer. Our answer is that we believe and trust in what Jesus has done for us. Now, if God were to turn to you and ask, and what exactly has Jesus done for you? What are you trusting? Would you have an answer for that? Whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you're not 100% sure, today's passage is for you. It's for all of us here. It might be familiar. Maybe you were reading along and and mentally switching off because you feel like you know it already, right? This is all familiar. This is all, I, I know this. Let me encourage you this morning. Pay attention again. Maybe even let the let me warn you to not assume, but to listen with fresh ears and open hearts. Don't be like the gentleman who once came up to me after one of my sermons and said, I didn't learn a new thing, anything. 
I, okay, I could have been boring, that's on me. But even if you claim to be a maturing Christian, today's passage should not be been there, done that, tick the boxes, I read it again. But should refresh your heart in the same way that a tall glass of ice cold water refreshes you on a hot and muggy Brisbane day. In this passage, we, uh, we'll see Jesus taken through a series of vignettes, a, a, a series of scenes, one after the other, that all lead to the moment of his crucifixion. And in each of these little scenes, we're given a glimpse into why Jesus is dying. So by the end of today, we should all have the proper answer to the question asked earlier. Why should God let you into his presence for eternity rather than send you to hell? In the opening verses for today, we're picking up in the, uh, we pick up in the morning, you can see in from verse 1. The night before, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, confronted and arrested. He had been brought before a kangaroo court, uh, which is a sham of a trial, and within minutes, found guilty. Now, if you hadn't heard this week, you may have seen in the news that former President Donald Trump was arrested and had to face court. He was flanked by a team of lawyers, the charges were read out, He pleaded not guilty, and he will be back in court in December to begin his hearing. Now, whatever you think of Donald Trump and those charges, you can see here that proper process and procedure in his rest has been done. Compare that to the chaos Jesus faced. Arrested in the middle of the night, false accusations put to him, no legal representation, no friends surrounding him, they had all scattered. And in the face of all this, he is immediately found guilty of blasphemy. But even though the chief priests and scribes would love to kill Jesus, they do not have the authority to do so. So they bring Jesus before Pilate, bound before him. He's the governor of the region. And that's where we begin this morning in this passage. Now, as Jesus is being taken away, have a look at verse 3. And you'll notice that Judas, the man who betrayed him, sees the arrest and has a change of mind. Now, we're not told why he changed his mind, but surely it is dawning on Judas what he has done. For 30 pieces of silver, a month's wages, he has betrayed God's one and only son. The gravity of this must have hit him like a ton of bricks. No doubt, filled with grief and regret, he approaches the chief priest with money, with the money, and he says, here, take it back. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas recognizes Jesus has done no wrong. And he won't be the last person in this scene to see that as well. Pilate will recognize it. In the Gospel of Luke, one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus recognizes this. And at the end of our passage, which we haven't read, one of the centurions recognizes this as well. But the chief priests have a cold reply in verse 4. They ask, what is that to us? What is this? See to it yourself. We don't need the money. We've got no use for it. They got what they wanted and they wanted what they got. Jesus is arrested. Judas played his part. They have no more need for Judas and his money. So Judas throws it at their feet. And in his grief and regret, he runs off and he commits suicide. The chief priests then take that money and buy a cemetery for strangers. Now, at the end of this scene, Matthew tells us something really interesting in verse 9 and 10. 
uh, that all of this took place as a fulfillment of Scripture. So if you get your Bibles there, read with me again verses 9 to 10. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him, of him, of whom, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord, had, Lord directed me. Now, this quote is actually uh, from the prophet. is actually quite tricky to explain. Its context is basically a judgment on the bad leaders of Israel, right? They, they have rejected God, and their reward was 30 pieces of silver. Now, Matthew is saying this here to say that the Old Testament story from the prophet uh, that this Old Testament story from the prophet is thematic. It has a theme. It's, think of it this way. It's like how in a musical piece, right, a composer introduces a theme or a melodic line at the beginning of the piece. Right? It might be just played by one or two instruments uh, playing this melodic line. It might be simple and plain. But then as the, as the, uh, as the concert goes on, that, that melodic line gets picked up again and it grows until you get to the crescendo, that melody is carried by the entire orchestra in big sweeping harmonies, right? The melody finds its fullness by the end. The Old Testament is a bit like that, right? There are moments throughout that you get these little kind of melodic lines introduced, right? The sacrificial system, the, the kingship or the priesthood. And then those kind of melodic lines get picked up again later on in the Old Testament, and they grow. So the sacrificial system grows and takes on bigger meaning in the prophets when they say that a new and better sacrifice is coming. Or this one about leadership starts this kind of melodic line earlier with the priesthood and the kings, and here the prophet takes that melodic line, he puts it in a minor key in condemnation of the corrupt leadership. Now, in Jesus, all of these melodic lines and themes in the Old Testament come to a roaring crescendo. Here in the betrayal of Jesus, we have the fullness of the judgment on corrupt leadership of God's people. In this case, the priests. They're taking the money and buying a piece of land is more than just a fulfillment of some obscure Old Testament reference. It's the crescendo of their condemnation. Now, in saying all of this, Matthew is also telling us that none of this is taking Jesus by surprise. Because all the melodies and themes find their fulfillment in Jesus. So every move that Jesus makes here is calculated on his part, moving him closer and closer to his death on the cross so that every one of the Bible's themes come to their fulfillment in Jesus. The next scene in verses 15 to 26 has Jesus and Pilate standing before the crowd. We read in verse 15, that it was a custom for Pilate to release a prisoner at this time of the year, someone the crowd wanted. Uh, on offer are two men, right? In one corner is Jesus, a man who Pilate doesn't believe has done anything wrong. And in the other corner is a man named Barabbas. We read in verse 16 that Barabbas is a notorious prisoner. We read in the other Gospels that he was an insurrectionist, which is a way of saying that he was a terrorist against Rome. This was not a good man. So Pilate puts them both before the both of these men before the crowd. Right tradition, I get to release one man. So he's thinking that the choice kind of is going to fall in Jesus' favor, given the other option. Right, him or Barabbas. Come on, you, you got to be a little bit sympathetic to Pilate here. He knows Jesus has done nothing wrong, but the crowd are growing increasingly aggressive. 
They're yelling, they're chanting. The last thing that Pilate wants is a riot, right? Rome would send its full might to quash any uncontrolled activity and he would then have his head on a chopping block. And so to quiet the crowd, to appease the crowd after checking twice, the crowd wants Barabbas set free. Pilate literally washes his hand, which is a way of saying, look, I'm done with this. You guys are now responsible for what happens to Jesus. And to appease the crowd, Jesus is turned over to be tortured, scourged, and crucified. Now, in this scene here, we have an astonishing picture of the gospel. We have the innocent punished and the guilty set free. And then there's also something deeper to this as well. You see, if you break down Barabbas' name, you get this. Bar means son of, and Abbas means the father, the father. His name is son of the father. So what you have in this picture, in this scene, is a guilty son of the father substituted for the innocent, perfect, beautiful, eternally praiseworthy son of the father. Here is a scene of incredible grace. Barabbas did nothing to deserve freedom. The only thing he brought to this moment was the sin that deserved punishment and condemnation. And yet in his place stands the innocent son of the father. Jesus takes his place so that no condemnation falls on Barabbas. Why did Jesus die? He gives his innocent life as a substitute for the guilty. In the third scene from verse 27 onwards, the Roman soldiers get their chance to have a bit of fun. They they abuse and they mock Jesus. They place a red scarlet robe on him. They twist a crown of thorns and piercing it into his forehead, they place a reed in his right hand to sort of look like a ruler's scepter. And once they've done all this, they now be, they kneel before him, pouring out their mockery. And as you notice that this whole scene has the same elements of the coronation of a king. Now, if you didn't know, I only found out a few nights ago when I Googled it, on May 6th, the coronation of King Charles is going to take place, right? And just so you, you, you just know, it's going to be a massive event. There's going to be music. There's going to be cheering. There's going to be crowds and crowds of people. It's going to be televised. Billions of people, no doubt, are going to watch this historic moment. There's going to be lots of ceremony in that moment. He will have to recite some vows, and the people will make their vows to follow his lead. He will be given a crown on his head, studded with the rarest jewels, a a scepter in his hand. That's that big, long stick. It's not there to whack people, although I think there is a tradition of that. Um, He's, it's, it's there to symbolize his rule and authority. And in his other hand, he holds this, the sovereign's orb, which is a little globey thing with the, the cross on it. Now, why all of this pageantry? Why all of this ceremony? Because it reflects something of his kingdom. It's meant to reflect something of his kingdom. The coronation is spectacular because it's meant to demonstrate what the king's kingdom is like. Why is the coronation of Jesus filled with mocking, with derision, the intense pain of a crown of thorns, the red robe mockingly placed over his shoulders, 
soldiers bowing before him as they make fun of him? Why is Jesus' coronation filled with violence as the soldiers beat him down and then crucify him? Why are the crowds there calling on him to save himself, to jump off the cross and prove that he's the Son of God? Why? Because it reveals something about his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not about earthly power. The path to greatness in his kingdom was always a path downwards, a path down from being the glorious sovereign creator to stooping down to become a creature and even lower to take the form of a servant to serve humanity by dying on the cross for them. The coronation of King Jesus happens in this way because he shows us the nature of his kingdom. It is not a kingdom of man, a kingdom of earth. It will not have the temporary and fading glory of an earthly kingdom. His kingdom is built on sacrifice and obedience to his father. And because he didn't save himself, the king would go on to save countless millions and billions who would make an eternal kingdom. In the fourth scene, we are now at the foot of the cross. Jesus has been hanging for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, roughly midday to 3 p.m. And in this time, a terrible and unearthly darkness covers the land. After three hours of this darkness, Jesus sucks in a deep, searingly painful breath and yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness and the cry from Jesus tell us what's going on. This is the moment that God's judgment is being poured out onto Jesus. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Propitiation is a big word. It means to turn away wrath and to satisfy God. Right? In scene number two, we saw a picture of the gospel, the substitution of an innocent man for the guilty. Here in scene four, we come to the heart of the gospel. God is a God of love, and his love and justice demands that rebellion and sin be dealt with. Uh, think of it this way. What, what makes a good parent? Right? When a child misbehaves, it is not loving for a parent to just keep letting it slide. Right? Letting it slide and ignoring the problem isn't an act of love. It's actually profoundly unloving because it teaches the child that they can get away with anything. In a bigger way, God's love for his creation demands that justice be exacted. God could not be said to be loving if he lets sin slide, if he lets this rebellion against his good order just keep sliding. But in God's infinite wisdom, he has made a way for his love to deliver sinners from his wrath without compromising his righteousness or justice. God has made a way so that he is not compromising his love or his justice in forgiving sinners. Here in this scene is how it all comes together. 
The sins of the past, God passed over. He did not punish them and then and there, but his wrath and his anger were storing up. And now on the cross, all that wrath and anger against sin is poured out on Jesus, like a, a magnifying glass, focusing a beam of white, hot light. God focused on his son, all of that stored up anger against sin. In the darkness of those three hours, the white hot anger of God against sin bears down on the body of Jesus on the cross. God's righteousness, his justice and holiness demand that sin be punished. And the cross shows us how God is able to demonstrate his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died and bore the wrath for us. God did not leave us to bear his wrath. In love, he sent Jesus to turn it away. I've got many problems in my life. I'm sure you've got your own. You can think of the big issues that nag away at you, some small, some big, relatively big. But do we forget so easily that our biggest problem, that we are sinners before an infinitely holy God, and unless something is done, our guilt is before him, and there is no hope for us. Maybe we forget that this is our biggest problem because we have forgotten or downplayed how holy God is. And here is Jesus, who stands in my place to bear the punishment I deserve. His death does what I could never hope to do, turn away God's wrath and anger from me. But to what end has Jesus done all of this? The final scene is very brief, one single verse, and what the passage continues on, I chose to finish here for our, purpose, our purposes today. In the final scene, we see the end for all of this, the end goal for why Jesus died. In verse 50, Jesus gave up his spirit. It's interesting wording because death doesn't overcome him. He gives up his spirit. Even in death, he is in control. Right? Then in verse 51, the scene moves over to the temple. The big, thick curtain that divides the most holy place inside the temple. Remember that the most holy place in the temple was, where, was the central place. It was the place where God's presence physically dwelt. And because of his holiness, there needed to be a division so that sinful people didn't just kind of waltz into his presence and die. A big, thick, heavy curtain divided the most holy place from the inner sanctuary. And only once a year could the high priest enter that place. But with the death of Jesus, that division between man and God is now gone. The curtain rips in two from top to bottom. The sin that separated God's people from God's presence was no longer there. It had been paid for. And so there is no more need of a division. Here's how the Apostle Peter puts it as we've been looking at. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent, for the guilty, that he might bring us to God. The fulfillment of God's word, the, the substitution of the innocent for the guilty, the crowning of the king who turns away God's wrath, all of this takes place so that we might be brought back to God. The heart of the gospel might be the substitutionary death of Jesus that pays for our sins and turns away God's anger. But the goal of the gospel 
is to be brought back to God, to be in relationship with him so that we can behold him properly. So as you can see, Matthew has laid out these, all of these scenes with multiple reasons why Jesus had to die. His death brings all of the scriptures together. His death is a substitute for the innocent, for the, of the innocent for the guilty. His death crowns him as the king, our king, who turns away God's wrath away from us and onto himself. And in his death, his, he reconciles us to God. This is what Jesus has done. But what Jesus has done will have no impact on any of us if we do not appropriate it, if we don't respond to it, if we don't take it for ourselves. So let me come back to that question that I started with at the beginning. If you were to die tonight and you met God and he asked you, why do you deserve to be let into heaven? What would you say? If your answer contains any hint that you were relying on any part of your own goodness or effort, then you've actually failed. If you could get in by your own effort, then Jesus did not need to die. You just need to try harder. His death would not have been necessary. And if you're relying on your own effort, then there is not enough that you could do to cover for the debt of sin that you owe. Jesus makes that clear in his own teachings that the debt we owe to God is insurmountable. It's impossible to repay. Now, the only reason you can be allowed into heaven is because you've placed all of your trust and your hopes in the finished work of Jesus. The extraordinary thing is that that is enough. To trust Jesus alone, to place all of your hope in what he has done, that is what God is calling on everyone to do. So again, how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, how are you saved? How are we forgiven and reconciled to God? And the answer is by grace, by God's sheer unmerited favor towards us, a gift. How do you receive that grace? The answer is through faith, by believing what Jesus has done and trusting it alone. It is not our good works that save us. Now, faith is not some blind leap in the dark. That is a rubbish understanding of faith. Faith listens to the Bible, believes what it says to be true, and responds with trust. Trusting that Jesus' death has done all that we've seen today, that it was the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that it was a substitution of his innocence for our guilt, that it crowns Jesus as king, and that he alone is the one who turns away God's wrath so that we might be reconciled to God. And maybe some of you are here thinking that, about that death question. And some of you are here relying on your own goodness. Or maybe you say all the right things about trusting Jesus, but in your heart of hearts, you think you're also good enough to be considered worthy. 
that's you, it's time for a reality check. Trusting in your own goodness or your own effort is like standing at the foot of the cross, staring up at that dying Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, thanks for this. It's really great what you're doing up there, but I'm going to take it from here. What you're doing is good, but it's not enough. The arrogance required to do that, man, that's, that's something. It's time for a reality check. It's time to recognize that you have nothing. You bring nothing but the sin that nails Jesus to the cross. You are like Barabbas. Maybe you're not a murderer, but you're guilty of insurrection against God. We're all deserving of death. And there is Jesus, innocent of any wrong, and he takes our place. Maybe it's time for you this Easter to do proper business with God, to recognize for the first time that you've been living your life in reliance on your own goodness and effort. That's what we need to repent of, to say no to that and to trust what Jesus has done alone. And I'm actually not just speaking to the non-believer here. The temptation to rely on our own goodness and effort is a temptation for all of us. So even if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we we need to keep checking our own hearts. Because if we don't, arrogance can creep in. We can start relying on our own strength, our own goodness, our own efforts in the past to win us eternal life. And if it's not arrogance, then it's certainly a wearisome job trying to be good enough for God. So we come to the end of this passage. Are you saying to yourself, well, I didn't learn anything new? Or have you heard it again? Has the work of Jesus refreshed your soul? Has the good news that trusting Jesus has done it all, has that refreshed the tiredness of all the effort-driven faith? Come again to Jesus, the one who has done it all. Trust him alone for everything. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what great and glorious and good news this is. Though we strive to be good in this life and though we strive with our efforts, we pray, Father, that that would not be because of arrogance as we try to earn our way into eternal life with you. May may that not be out of fear or wearisome effort that we're trying to earn it either. Father, help us to trust what Jesus has done alone. Maybe for some of us today here, for the first time, we need to do that. We need to recognize that if we stand before you, we've been trying to rely on our goodness, our effort. Help us to recognize that it's only by what Jesus has done. Help us to see this passage again afresh, to see everything that Jesus has done for us and to trust that alone. And help us to keep trusting it always, to not fall into the trap of then starting to rely on our own goodness. Help us to keep coming back again and again to refresh our souls in this word. For we ask this for your glory and our eternal joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.